We have chosen as the overall theme of this series, War of Thrones, and so we're looking at the conflict between good and evil, the battle between good and evil. And yesterday, I think we kind of laid the groundwork, we built a foundation as we looked at Scripture and what Scripture teaches about this conflict, this cosmic conflict. But you know, there are many stories in the Bible, stories in the scripture, uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament of events that happened on this earth that are like a type of this great and grand battle between good and evil. And so you have stories in the Old Testament about kings and and kingdoms and and battles and and, and wars. And, And these provide us, of course, information about what happened in the past, but they are also a picture of a bigger thing that is going on. And I want to take you uh, tonight to uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. And uh, in the Old Testament, there's this book um, by, it has the title of the writer, Daniel, and it was written between 500 and 600 years before Christ. And this little book of 12 chapters in the Old Testament provides us with some incredible prophecies about things that are going to happen, uh, or both have happened and are going to happen. And um, I like to say that the book of Daniel is like the twin book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. And when you take those two prophetic books, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation in the New Testament, it provides you with this panoramic picture of prophecy. And so we're going to spend some considerable amount of time both in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation uh, during this seminar. And so I want to start in Daniel chapter 2 and give you a little bit of a, of a picture here of the historical setting of this apocalyptic book. So Daniel chapter, chapter we're actually going to spend some time of, in a prophecy in chapter 2, but let's start in chapter 1 and take notice of the very first words in this prophetic book. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And the Bible reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Now, the whole book of Daniel begins with basically bad news. (laughs) And the bad news is that the people of God, the chosen people of God, the Hebrew nation, are now subjected, they are under another authority, another kingdom. And it's the kingdom of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has attacked Jerusalem. He has invaded the country. He has now um, destroyed the city and the sanctuary of God's people. And he's brought captives back to Babylon, among whom is Daniel. Daniel was a young man at this time, probably not even out of his teens. And together with many others, he is now taken to a foreign nation, to the nation of Babylon. And, you know, whenever one kingdom would... Um, would conquer another kingdom, what they would often do is they would take the precious um, uh, objects of that kingdom with them. And so this is exactly what we read here in the introduction of the book of Daniel. They took the articles of the house of God. The house of God here is referring to the sanctuary, the temple, which was built in Jerusalem. And inside of the temple, they would have many objects of, of gold that now were taken by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And for For the kingdom of Babylon, this was a great, great victory. They actually considered that that their gods were supreme over the gods or the god of the Hebrews. They thought, now we have conquered. Look, our gods are stronger than yours. So the outset of the book is kind of like, it starts in in a very negative way. The very reason why the Hebrews were taken captive, if you read it in connection with the rest of the story of the Old Testament, is very clear that they had moved away from God. They were, they were no longer serving God, and, and they were no longer the people that were putting him on display uh, in, that, in the world at that time. As a matter of fact, there was a lot of corruption uh, and um, they had moved away and they were worshiping other gods. And and so God in his mercy withdrew his protection from the people and allowed this to take place in in order to captivate their attention, to get their attention as to what really matters. 
And so here at the outset of the story, we see that God's people have lost their kingdom and they have also lost their sanctuary. Their temple has been destroyed. But the whole story within the book of Daniel is how the kingdom and the sanctuary are restored. Not only the kingdom at, in the days of Daniel, but rather also looking at a bigger picture of God's eternal kingdom, God's final kingdom, and how that will be restored. And also, not only looking at the temple in Jerusalem, but our attention in the book of Daniel is also drawn to God's sanctuary, another sanctuary, not an earthly sanctuary, but a sanctuary in heaven where, where God dwells. And so, provide it, the, the, the story of Daniel provides us with a local, geographical, real event and story of the past, but it also provides us with a picture of the bigger plan of salvation and how God will ultimately, finally, set up his kingdom in the end, and how he will ultimately and finally reveal his heavenly sanctuary where God dwells and where he intercedes for, for each and every one of us. So, fascinating story indeed. Now, in the book of Daniel, as you start reading the book of Daniel in chapter 1, it tells us about how Daniel, among other captives, was taken to Babylon. And when he comes to Babylon, he was selected to be trained under, uh, uh, under the king. And so he was trained so that he would, could be one of the wise men of Babylon. And so they, they selected the best of the young people of the Hebrews. They taught them the Babylonian language, the Babylonian culture, in order for them to now be integrated into Babylon so that they could use their talents as young people for the service of the king of Babylon. And so Daniel is chosen among those to be trained by the king. And already in the first chapter, it's very obvious that he has a special character because when he is provided with the king's food and the king's meat and the king's wine, he says, no, thank you. He says, I would rather have a simple and healthy diet than eat this, the, the king's meat. And, and of course, the, the caretaker of, of these young men is, is kind of astonished and, and somewhat fearful that if he doesn't eat of the king's table, then perhaps he will be in trouble. And so Daniel says, but just test me for 10 days. Let me, let me eat healthy food and, and let me abstain from the wine of the king and, and then test us, see how, we, how, how we'll be doing. And and so they're tested after those 10 days, and, and it appears that Daniel is a lot more healthy than the other young, young men. And so he is able to continue uh, following his, his God and his way and, and the ways of, of, of the Hebrews. And, and it is fascinating in the end of the chapter of chapter 1. Uh, after a period of about three years, all these young men are brought together and they're tested by the king. And it says that Daniel and his friends, those that followed the ways of the Lord, were found to be 10 times wiser than the other young men. And so God already has positioned Daniel and his friends here in Babylon to be an incredible witness and testimony of his power. And so here they are in a foreign nation, in a land far away, and yet here they are presenting a picture of the true God. Yes, the kingdom of, he of the Hebrews has fallen. Yes, the temple has been destroyed. Yes, they have been taken captive, but this is not the end of the story. God has placed a witness right in the center of Babylon, right in the center of this adulterous um, uh, uh, nation, right in the center of, of a nation that is worshiping other gods. Here, Daniel is to speak for the true God. And so we come into the second chapter. And in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, you read about how King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And it's not just any kind of dream, it's a very special dream. It is a dream about what the future is going to hold. Now in the morning, maybe you've experienced this yourself sometimes, you know you had an important dream, you know that you dreamt something, something that was significant, but, but you don't remember all the details. Have you ever had that? Well, the same happened to the king. He wakes up and he knows he's, he's had an important dream. He needs to know what this means, but he doesn't remember all the details of his dream. And so the Bible tells us that he, he gathers together all his wise men, his astrologers, and, 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 and all of these magicians, and, and he says, I want you to tell me what I dreamt and the meaning of my dream. Now, the magicians and the astrologers and the wise men, they say, King, just tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. And the king says, no, I, that, that's not what I pay you for. <laughs> you're not just going to tell me the interpretation, you're going to tell me what I dreamt. 
And so they are like, but, but, but king, this, this is a too hard of a, of a thing. We, we can't do this. And so the king becomes enraged. You know, what, what use do I have of these magicians and astrologers and all of these wise men if they can't even tell me what I dreamt? And so he passes a death degree. And he says, you know what? You're all going to die. And so the news reaches Daniel, and Daniel is one of those wise men. And so his life is now threatened. And the Bible tells us, remarkably, that he goes home after he hears of this news. And you know what the first thing, you know what the first thing is that he does? It would probably be the first thing that you and I would do as well. He gets on his knees and he prays. He gets on his knees and he prays and he says, Oh God, please reveal to me the dream of the king and the interpretation of the dream. And the Bible tells us in Daniel chapter 2, as he goes to sleep, that God gives him the very same dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And not only does he receive the dream, but he also receives the meaning or the interpretation of that dream. And so the next day, Daniel makes his way to the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar, and he comes before the king, and the king is now very curious. I can imagine that he's sitting on the tip of his, of his throne, and he's just waiting for the interpretation. And he says, can you, Daniel, can you tell me what I dreamt? And Daniel says, no, I can't, but God can. He says, no, I don't know, but God has revealed to the king what is in the future. And the dream that you had, King Nebuchadnezzar, is about the days to come. And so he starts explaining the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. In the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he saw a great big image. And the image was made of different material. The head was made of gold. The chest and arms were made of silver the thigh was made the thigh was made of brass and the legs were made of iron and the feet were made partly of iron and partly of clay and so he starts explaining this dream this metal man made of different material and the king is like that's exactly what i dreamt and not only did he dream about this big image made of different material, but he also dreamt about a big rock, a stone that hit the image on the feet and then the image crumbled to pieces. And so Daniel's explaining the dream. He says, yeah, you saw that, you saw that image. The head was made of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the thigh of brass, the, the legs of iron, the, 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 the feet part of iron, part of clay. And as you looked at that image, there was a stone that hit the feet and everything crumbled to pieces. And now you can just imagine the king is like, yes, what does this mean? What is the meaning of this dream? And so Daniel says, in chapter 2 and verse 37 and 38. You can follow along in your Bible. You can read it here on the screen. Listen to what it says. Daniel says, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And then he says these words, You are the head of gold. The kingdom of Babylon is represented by the head of gold in the image, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And so here we have the first kingdom represented. And so what we're going to see as we, as we take a look at this prophetic image is that we are basically moving through time, looking at different kingdoms that passed away, that came and that passed away, right up to the very time in which we are living. And so the first kingdom in this prophecy is none other than Babylon. Babylon is represented by the head of gold. Now, Babylon reigned from about 605 BC to 539 BC. This was the time period of the, the nation of Babylon represented by the head of gold. Here you see on the map the region of Babylon there in the Middle East. And uh, you can also see how Babylon conquered um, uh, Israel and um, uh, destroyed uh, Jerusalem. And this kingdom is actually very well presented by a head of gold because Babylon, the city itself, was actually known as the Golden City. It's interesting, there was a temple inside of Babylon which was dedicated to the god called Marduk and it was 300 feet high Outside, it was covered with blue glazed tile, and inside, it was overlaid with gold. There was an altar and throne in that temple that was made of eight and a half tons of solid gold. 
So if you're going to represent Babylon, it is well represented by a head of gold, known as the golden city of Babylon. But take notice, as Daniel continues to explain the dream to the king, he says the following words in verse 39. He says, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. So as he's standing before the king, he's talking about the kingdom of Babylon represented by the head of gold. But then he says, but this is not the last kingdom. Another kingdom is going to come after yours. It's not going to be as rich as the kingdom of Babylon. It's going to be inferior, but there is coming. There is another kingdom is coming. Now, when we look, we, we have kind of the privilege today in 2019 uh, to have the hindsight. We can kind of look back on history and we can look back on the events that have unfolded throughout time. And so we can historically look back at which kingdom conquered Babylon. And the kingdom that conquered Babylon is none other than Medo-Persia. It was actually uh, unify, uh, unifying two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medo-Persian army was the army that invaded Babylon and conquered Babylon. Actually, when you visit the um, British Museum in London, you'll find an object called the Cyrus Cylinder which uh, in ancient times, it was quite common that they would record the events of history on cylinders or stones or tablets. And so on the Cyrus cylinder was recorded how Babylon was conquered because Babylon was a very mighty city. It had, it had so, it, it, the walls of Babylon were so thick that you could race three chariots on those walls besides each other. It was so thick. They had a food supply of about 20 years. Babylon was, an uncon was known as the unconquerable city. There was a river going through Babylon called the Euphrates, so they always had a supply of water. And so they were not afraid of any other kingdoms. But then comes Medo-Persia. And as they get closer and closer to Babylon, they, they come now to the city and they have surrounded the city. But the Babylonians are not, they're not even afraid because, you know, they had, they had lots of food and they had enough water. Um, there are even reports uh, of archaeologists that say they find the kind of reports about wh what was happening in those days. And they say that the Babylonians were basically just throwing food at the Medo-Persians saying, here's your lunch package, go home. We're not even afraid of you. You don't even need to stay here. But what took place was that Cyrus, which was the commander of the Medo-Persian army, he did something very smart. What he did is he, he built a huge reservoir and he allowed the water, the water of, of, of the Euphrates to run into this reservoir so that the riverbed was dried up. And then on one fatal night, when the Babylonians were feasting, they invaded the city by marching their men under the walls through that dried out riverbed. Now, normally there was even a gate that, that went right through the water, into the water, the, the, the metal bars, but this gate was left open on that night. And so they were able to get into the city that way and they conquered Babylon in one night. Now, this is recorded on the Cyrus Cylinder, this event of the, of the conquering of Babylon, but you can also actually read it in the book of Daniel. It's recorded there in, um, in chapter, chapter 5. Now, take notice of what the Bible says about Cyrus and what he would do. And I'm now taking you to another Old Testament prophet, and this time I'm taking you to the book of Isaiah. Now, it's interesting because the book of Isaiah was actually written before the book of Daniel. Uh, Bible scholars that have looked into the book of Isaiah, they will place it um, uh, approximately um, 700, 800 years uh, before Christ. And so here we have a prophet prior to the prophet of Daniel, which is already talking about what was going to happen after God's people, the Hebrews, would be in Babylon. Because God had already predicted through a variety of prophets, including also Jeremiah, that they would go into captivity. And actually the prophet Jeremiah even told them how long they would be in captivity. He says, you'll be there for 70 years. That's exactly what happened. They were there for 70 years. But already these prophets are also giving glimmers of hope of what would happen after that time of captivity. And Isaiah, hundreds of years in advance, told about Cyrus that would come and he would be the instrument of God to release them so that after the captivity they could go back and restore the city of Jerusalem and restore the temple. 
This is fascinating. Listen to what Isaiah writes about this individual Cyrus, which wasn't even born at this time. He says the following in Isaiah chapter 44, who confirms the word of his servants and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And here Cyrus is used as a type of actually what Jesus, the great shepherd, would do. He would set us free from this world and set us free from the captivity of this world, just like Cyrus was setting God's people free from the captivity of Babylon. And Isaiah, as he pens down these words under the inspiration of God, he says, one day Cyrus will come and Cyrus will set you free and he will allow you to go back to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And so the second kingdom in our prophetic dream in Daniel chapter 2 is none other than the Medo-Persia kingdom, represented by the chest and arms of silver. Now this kingdom reigned from 539 BC to 331 BC. So what we're doing now is we're following the prophecy and we're following history. And the first nation was Babylon, represented by the head of gold. And now we've gone to the second kingdom, which is Medo-Persia, re represented by the chest and arms of silver. Medo-Persia, as you can see here, was quite a, uh, a large empire at that time. It had, it had conquered even far um, towards the east and the west and even into the continent of Africa. But this wasn't the end of the story. Because as we continue in Daniel chapter 2, listen to what the prophet says to King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 39, he says, the second part of the verse, Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So he says, you have the first kingdom represented by gold. You have a second kingdom represented by silver. But now there's a third kingdom represented by bronze. Now, again, we look at history. What kingdom conquered Medo-Persia? Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece, and Greece ruled from 331 BC to 168 BC. Now, it's very interesting when you look at the kingdom of Greece, because the kingdom of Greece came from the west as it conquered towards the east, towards Medo-Persia. And as they met each other, there was this famous battle on the fields of Arbella. And the king of Greece, which was Alexander the Great, was now facing the king of the Medes and the Persians, a man by the name of Darius. And as they met each other, uh, Darius had actually a much larger army than Alexander the Great. Actually, by conservative estimation, the army of Darius was 10 times larger than the army of Alexander the Great. But Darius the king, he was not cert so certain about this young general this, uh, that had actually conquered already many nations. And so he was not so sure if he wanted actually to fight him. And so he sends a messenger to Alexander the Great. And the messenger said to Alexander the Great, why can't you just be king in the West and I can be king in the East? And so Alexander the Great, he sent a messenger back, and the messenger that came to Darius said the following words, as there are no two suns in the sky, there is no place for you and I. And so the battle began on the fields of Arbella, and Alexander the Great, he used his horsemen in such a magnificent way that he actually conquered the Medes and the Persians and was able to um, conquer this entire nation. And he continued to move towards the east, even all the way to India. And his men got so tired because eventually there was just nothing more to conquer. In eight years on horseback, he was conquering the then known world. And um, Alexander the Great, of course, went down in history as uh, one, of, uh, one of the greatest military uh, geniuses. But you know what? He wasn't really, even though he could conquer uh, the world, he wasn't really able to conquer himself. He had, a, he had actually a big problem. And that was that every time he would conquer an, a, 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 an army, um, he would have a big party and he would drink a lot. And uh, actually that led eventually to, to sickness and, and, and death. He died at the age of 33, which is interesting. He conquered the world, the then known world. 33 years old, he passes away. And I'm thinking to myself, there's another individual in scripture that died when he was 33. 
Well, he conquered the hearts of man, and that was Jesus Christ, amen? And yet his death is remembered even until today because Jesus Christ did something so significant. He didn't conquer like the armies of this world conquer, but he conquered the hearts by giving his life as a ransom for us. But we continue in our journey here in Daniel chapter 2 because now we're going to move to the fourth kingdom. We started with Babylon. After Babylon came Medo-Persia, after Medo-Persia came Greece, and now we've come to the fourth kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 40, the Bible says, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. So when we come to the fourth kingdom, the fourth kingdom is described as a very strong nation, a nation that breaks and shatters everything. Well, what kingdom are we looking at here? If we look into history again, the kingdom of Greece was conquered by none other than the Roman Empire. So the legs of iron are representing the Roman Empire that lasted for a long time, from 168 BC to approximately 476 AD. Now it's hard for historians to put a date on the end of the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was not really conquered in one day. As a matter of fact, the Roman Empire, it, it, it kind of gradually fell apart. It was fragmented because there was corruption from within and there were different armies from, 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 from uh, uh, different sides of the kingdom invading. And so it was a process of, of it falling apart. But it's interesting that when you look at the Roman Empire, it ruled all around the Mediterranean Sea. It, it, it had vast, vast areas uh, geographically that it conquered and ruled for many, many years. Now listen to what this um, historian, Edward Gibbon, writes in his book, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. An interesting language that he's using that reminds us of what we have just been going over in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. He says the following, the images of gold, silver, and brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successfully broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. And he's alluding to the very language of Daniel chapter 2. Here we have kingdoms that are represented by these materials, and now this has had to make place for Rome, which is known as the iron monarchy, represented by the legs of iron in the image. But now comes a very fascinating part of the prophecy. So I hope you don't fall asleep now because this, is, this is, gets really interesting because now we're coming closer and closer to the very times in which we are living. Because, you know, you think about it, uh, you think about prophecy and it's really not that hard to predict that another kingdom will come and then an, a, a second kingdom or a third kingdom will come and a fourth kingdom will come. Anyone can kind of predict that, that there's going to be a kingdom coming after this kingdom. But the special thing about Daniel chapter 2 and the special thing about this prophetic dream are the very details that now follow. Because what Daniel said to the king has truly come to pass. Daniel said this uh, about 500 years before Christ when he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he says, you are the head of gold. After you will come another kingdom, then will come a third kingdom, then will come a fourth kingdom. But listen to what he says would happen to the fourth kingdom. He says the following in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, listen to the next sentence, the kingdom shall be what? The kingdom shall be divided. So the prediction of the, the, the prophetic dream predicted that there would be four kingdoms and then the fourth kingdom would be divided. It wouldn't be conquered by one other nation. You know, Medo-Persia conquered Babylon. Greece conquered Medo-Persia. Rome conquered Greece. But now something else would happen. The kingdom would be divided. And that's exactly what we see when we trace history. Because yes, it passed on from one kingdom to another kingdom. But when we come to Rome, Rome was not conquered by one nation. There's no nation that we can refer to that says, this is the nation that conquered Rome. Rome was not conquered by one nation. Rome fell apart. It was divided into many different nations. Here's just a map of the Western Roman Empire shortly after the Roman Empire fell. And you can see the different uh, tribes that basically conquered uh, Rome and later became the, 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 the countries that we're familiar with in Europe today. 
um, and of course there was a lot of um, uh, the the uh, the borders uh, have changed as to what they were at that time. But it's clear that there was a division, a dividing of that empire. Now take notice of what Daniel says in verse forty-three. It says he's speaking to the king here, and he says, "As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay." they will mingle with the seed of man. And now he's getting more and more precise in his prophecy. Because first he says, okay, there will come a second kingdom, there will come a third kingdom, there will come a fourth kingdom. But then he says the fourth kingdom will be divided. But some more information here. It will not just be a divided kingdom, but there will actually be an attempt to unite this kingdom. They will mingle with the seed of man. This is actually, when you look at the original language that is used here, it's very interesting. It's referring to intermarriage. And so there will be an attempt to unite the fallen Roman Empire by intermarriage, by the mingling of the seed. And you know what? When you look at history, the European history, this is exactly what you see. They were trying to unite the Roman Empire. And this happened over centuries where one prince would marry the princess of another country in order to unite these countries. Or one king would try to unite with the queen of another country. And so for a while, sometimes there was somewhat of a unity. But if you read the history of the fallen Roman Empire, you read the history of Europe, you will find that this unity never lasted very long. It never lasted very long. And this is exactly what the prophecy predicted. Because right after he says that they will uh, mingle with the seed of man, he says the following in the, in the latter part of verse 43, he says, but they will not adhere to one another just as iron does not mix with clay. So he says, after the fourth kingdom, there will be a division of the kingdom. They will try to unite through intermarriage, but it's not going to last. The, 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 the attempt to unite is not going to last. And isn't it interesting that when you look throughout history, you know, we have so many examples of the kings of France and the kings of, in, in Germany and Austria. And, and of course, even when we look at more, uh, relatively more recent history, we look at the Second World War and other attempts, it was to unite this, uh, this, this, this continent, to unite this, uh, this empire of Europe, but it didn't last very long. As a matter of fact, just recently, um, uh, you've probably heard about it in the news here as well, uh, you know, uh, England is now in the middle of this whole Brexit deal, where, you know, it, it just, even the EU, the European Union, it's not lasting. There are countries that now want out. And isn't it interesting that prophecy predicted so many years in advance that this was exactly what would happen. The European continent, the, the fallen Roman Empire, it would try to unite, but it would not last. But take notice of what Daniel, as he continues to interpret the dream, listen to what he says in verse 45. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Again, we have the advantage living in 2019 to look back and to see how all of this has already happened. You know, we, we have hindsight. We see how Babylon has fallen and Medo-Persian uh, reigned, but then it fell and Greece came and Rome came. And, and we look back now uh, on, on the history of Europe and we see how Europe was divided. And, and we can look at all the different attempts that were made by Louis XIV and, and Charles, uh, you know, and, and the kings of, 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 um, of uh, Germany and, and all, these, all these attempts over the years and, and later Hitler himself. And, and we see how they failed again and again and again and again but now look at what look at how at how this this prof prophecy ends because in verse 44 and 45 we read the following and in the days of these kings the god of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people he goes on and he says, it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. And so now he's referring to the last part of the, of, of the, uh, of the prophecy of the dream. The image was, 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 was hit by a stone. It was hit on the feet and it crumbled to bits. And now he's saying that this, 
This stone that hit the image is none other than the kingdom of God. The kingdom, not a human kingdom. We've, all, we've seen all of these human kingdoms, one coming up after the other. But now we've come to a time where God is going to set up his kingdom. So, so what does the stone represent? The stone represents the end of the kingdoms of this world and the beginning of God's eternal kingdom. In other words, we can refer to this as the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ is a big theme throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament. In the New Testament, we have again and again and again promises about the coming of Jesus. He came 2,000 years ago, right on time. We're going to actually look at a prophecy uh, in a future night about the exact arrival of Jesus the first time, and that it was according to prophecy. But, but not only do we have prophecies about his first coming, we also have prophecies about his second coming. And there are, there are indications throughout the Bible, and again, especially the New Testament, that Jesus will one day come again. And Daniel chapter 2 talks about the eternal kingdom of God coming in the end of time. And it will be like a stone that hits the image. All these kingdoms of this world will, will crumble and fall, and in its place will rise up the very kingdom that we all anticipate and wait for, the very kingdom of God himself. Jesus is, by the way, often referred to as the stone or the foundation, the rock. And here in this prophetic image, he is also represented by the stone that hits the image. Now, let us ask this question, what will the coming of Jesus be like? Because now I've looked at a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 about, about the coming of Christ, but, but let us look a little bit closer at this for just uh, the remaining minutes that we have together. And I want to bring you to a couple of passages in the Bible that talk about what the coming of Jesus will look like, what it will be like. Because, you know, there is actually a lot of confusion out there when it comes to the coming of Jesus. Um, you know, there have been movies and novels that have been put out um, portraying so-called about how this event will happen. But, but let me just tell you one thing. I think the best place to go to learn about the second coming is this book. Amen? The best place to go to learn about what will actually take place when Jesus comes is to go to the Bible itself. I've met, unfortunately, a lot of Christians that base their understanding of Christ's return on some movie they watched or some novel they read. I say, well, go back to the Bible because in the Bible, it will actually tell you what his coming is like, how it will happen, what it will look like so that you are prepared and so that you don't fall for any deception. So let us look at a couple of scriptures. I want to start with Acts chapter 1. Now, Acts chapter 1, you think, why, why would you go there? Isn't that the story of the early church? Isn't that the story about things that happened 2,000 years ago? Yes. But it's interesting because when Jesus left his disciples and he ascended from into the clouds, he said the following words were spoken at his ascension. This is very interesting when it comes to the second coming of Jesus. It says in Acts chapter 1, now when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. So the disciples are watching as Jesus is, is, is ascending into, into, into the heavens. And look at what it says. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. The, these are none other than angels that are standing among the disciples here. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, listen very carefully, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels themselves, as they're standing among the disciples there, they tell the disciples and they tell us that just like Jesus was ascending into heaven, in the same manner, he will come again. Just as he was ascending into the, in the clouds, so he will come in the clouds when he comes back a second time. So when we're talking about the second coming, we're not talking about some mystical, spiritual event that we can't identify. According to scripture, we will be able to identify the second coming just as much as the early disciples were able to identify Jesus as he was taken from them into the clouds. It will happen in like manner. Let's go to another text. 
Here, this one is taken also from a New Testament book, 1 Thessalonians. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians, the early Christians in Thessalonica. And he writes the following in this letter that we can read in chapter 4, verse 16 and 17. And he's describing the second coming and he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, when you hear the word shout, that's not a silent event. Okay, so it's not some kind of secretive event, the second coming of Christ. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. Now, when I was a little bit younger, I actually, for some years, I was playing trumpet. And uh, especially when I was learning to play the trumpet, I wasn't good at it at all. And I got some complaints from my siblings because the trumpet is very loud. You know, when you play trumpet, you can't do that like kind of in your room by yourself that no one hears. The trumpet is a loud instrument. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying here is when Jesus comes back, you are going to notice it. It's not a secret. It's not silent. You're going to notice it. There's going to be a shout from heaven. There's going to be an archangel. There's going to be the sound of a trumpet. And then listen to what is going to happen when Jesus comes. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Oh, if you've ever lost a loved one, or if you've, ever, if you've ever been afraid of death, what a word of comfort in Scripture that when Jesus comes, there will be a resurrection, amen? There will be a resurrection of the dead, and it will happen when Jesus appears in the sky. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And this is, very, this is a very interesting text, because if anyone, anyone on this earth with their feet on this earth claim to be Jesus, well, by default, you can say, uh-uh, no, no. The scripture tells us that when Jesus comes back the second time, where are we going to meet him? We're going to meet him in the air. In other words, we will meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will not come back to this earth. He will not stand on this earth because we will meet him in the air. And then the Bible tells us how he will take us to the place that he has prepared for us. And we'll look more at the details of that on a, on a later night. But it's very interesting. We know that there will be deception. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that there will be many that will come to claim to be Christ. But you know they're wrong because the Bible says we will meet him in the air. He will come back with great glory. It won't be a secret. We will all experience, as a matter of fact, the book of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and some eye will see him. No, every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. When Jesus comes, it's not a secret. It's not gonna, it's gonna, it's not gonna happen in some locally uh, secluded area of the world. It's not like, oh, Asia experienced the second coming, but not America, or Europe experienced the second coming, but not Africa. No, the Bible tells us that every eye will see him. The whole world eventually will experience the coming of Jesus when he comes the second time. It's not a secret. It's loud. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And it will be experienced by everyone. Sadly, though, there will be many that will not be happy about the second coming, even implied in this verse in Revelation 1-7. Some they will mourn. Some they will be sad because they have sided themselves with the enemy in this great conflict between good and evil. Remember our theme, War of Thrones. You see, if we have come to Jesus, if we have given our heart to Christ, then we are on the winning side of this battle. Can you say amen? You know, and if we're on the winning side of this battle, then when he comes, we receive him with great, great, great joy. But if you find yourself on the enemy's side in this war of thrones, then when Christ comes and Christ appears to be the victorious one, then sadly, there will be many that will mourn when he returns. In Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31, listen to what it says about the second coming of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Not only is the second coming a loud event, not only is it a glorious event, but you know, when he comes, he will sit on his throne and all the angels will be with him. Can you imagine when, when one angel appears, there are stories in the Old Testament uh, of angels appearing, also in the New Testament. And when one angel appears, there, there's this magnificent scene. But can you imagine when all the angels appear? Can you imagine what that must look like? And then Jesus himself 
is sitting on the throne, now we have the outcome of this great war of thrones. The very king appears. Jesus appears on his throne with all his angels. And this is the coming of Christ in the beginning of his kingdom, the kingdom of glory. You know, when you study the, the kingdom in scripture, you basically have two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of grace, which already has begun. And, and basically when Jesus came the first time, he, he talked often about what his kingdom is like. And this is the kingdom that we can already live in today as we follow Jesus, the kingdom of grace. But then you have also the kingdom of glory. And that's the kingdom that will be set up when he returns the second time. When, he, oh, when, when, when all the kingdoms of this world pass away and the eternal kingdom has come. Now, there's an amazing story in the Old Testament. And again, these stories that we have in Scripture are not just there for, 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 for entertainment or for just reading about what happened in the past. They have significance for us today. And there's this story in the Old Testament about a boy king called Joash. And Joash, he was supposed to be the next king in Jerusalem. But what took place was that there was a, a, a wicked queen called Athaliah, and she took control and she basically murdered all of the, of the, of the kings that she knew or possible uh, uh, men that could become kings. But she didn't get a hold of this young baby. There was a baby at, at that time, jo uh, Joash. And Joash was hidden in the temple by one of the priests. And so he was raised in the temple. You can read the story in the book of Kings. And then when, we, when he was seven years old, the, the priests, they gathered the people and they blew the trumpet. And as they blew the trumpet, they announced that Joash was the rightful king, the true king. Of course, the wicked queen, Athaliah, comes on the scene, and, 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 but she is taken away. And, and now the rightful king has been given his throne back. And as I think about that story, which is a story of the past, I think how this, how this basically this story is playing out on a much larger picture in the plan of salvation because there's a rightful king and his name is Jesus. And yet in our very world today, it seems as if someone else is ruling. Oh, the devil, Satan, that fallen angel that we talked about yesterday, Lucifer himself, he shows himself to be the king of this world, but he's a fraud. And one day very soon, Jesus will come back and the rightful king will sit on his throne. Can you say amen? And if we are part of his kingdom, then we will become part of what he has prepared for us. And that will be glorious, my friends. There are scriptures that tell us about the kingdom that God has prepared for us, has prepared for those that are faithful and those that belong to him in this battle between good and evil. Tonight, you can give your heart to Jesus. Tonight, you can say, Jesus, I want you to be my king. You are my savior, my Lord, my very best friend. I want to belong to you. I want to live in your kingdom of grace, even in this world today, in anticipation and preparation for your eternal kingdom when you come again. And I hope that that is your decision tonight. You see, the world is awaiting the coming king. And as we wait for the coming king, let us be sure that we are on his side, that we are following his way. You know, one day very soon, that stone will hit the image we are living in the, very, in the very toes of the image, so to speak. We're not living in the head of gold. We're not in Babylon. We're not in Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome. We are living in the divided empire, divided world. And the world is trying to unite in so many ways. And yet the attempts, they seem in vain because God has a, has a better plan. And that better plan of God is that he will set up his eternal kingdom. What do you say? And as we live there in the tip of those toes of the image, the prophetic image of Daniel chapter two, we can look forward with great anticipation to the soon coming of Jesus when he comes back. We don't have a date and we shouldn't put any date because the Bible is very clear. Jesus himself said, you don't know the, the, the time or the hour, but you do have signs. And he gave us lots of signs to show us that his coming is near. And by the way, tomorrow evening, and I hope you come tomorrow evening, we're going to look at some of those signs. There's actually a whole chapter in the Bible that talks about all the signs that we should be looking at to know if the coming of Jesus is near. And so I hope you come tomorrow as we look at prophecies, signs of the times. But I want to close with this scripture for tonight. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day 
and listen to what he says. He knows that the religious leaders of his day have rejected him. He knows that these are the very people that are soon going to put him on a cross. And he says to them the following words in Matthew chapter 21. He says, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in his eyes. What is Jesus doing here? He's referring to himself as the rock, the stone. Very interesting in connection with the prophecy we just read and, and studied together in Daniel chapter 2. And he says, this stone you have rejected. You've rejected the Messiah. I'm here. I'm the promised one, but you have rejected me. And then he goes on to say about this stone, he says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Jesus referring to his kingdom as a stone or a rock. And he says, you know what? It will be given, the kingdom of God will be given to whoever wants to receive it with humility. What will happen is those that receive the kingdom of God in humility, it, they will be broken on this stone. It's like referring to what happens when we repent of our sins. You know, we come to Christ and we're, we're broken because of the condition, the sinful condition in our lives. But we say, God, I want you to forgive. And, and, and through that process, we experience healing, the healing of our souls. But if we, were not, if we will not be broken on the stone, if we do not come to Christ in repentance, the words of Jesus tell us that eventually the stone will hit us. If we are part of the kingdoms of this world and we live in the world and we live off the world and we, and we don't want the kingdom of God, then that stone will grind us to powder. The Bible is very explicit in its language. And so the decision comes to every one of us. What will we do with the stone? What will we will do with the kingdom of God? And, and I pray that every single one of us tonight will say, you know what? I want to come to Jesus. I want to be broken on that rock because then the healing process can begin. I want to repent of my sins because I know that I have a sin bearer. Jesus has taken my sins, amen? He has paid the price for my sins and I belong to him. He paid the price for me. And I'm, we are of great value in the eyes of God. And so if we give our lives to him, he will do something marvelous in us. You know, we can live our lives planted on the rock. So when the storm comes, when the storms of life hit us, we are planted on the rock. We have a sure foundation in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you again for coming tonight. I hope it was a blessing. And I, and I look forward to our continued journey tomorrow as we're going to look at the topic of prophecy signs of the times. But let us pray in closing and, um, and then we'll, um, we'll dismiss. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you so much for your blessings and for speaking to our hearts and minds through this amazing prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. We thank you, Lord, that you have shown us from ancient times the things that would happen right up to our very day and age. And thank you, Lord, for the great hope of the coming of Christ. Help us to prepare for that kingdom and to belong to you. I pray that as we come to you that you will receive us and that you will heal us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.